0: You are listening to the Edu Salon Podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon Podcast. Recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nitalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Ellie Drago-Severson. Ellie is a developmental psychologist and Professor of Education Leadership and Adult Learning and Leadership at Teachers College, Columbia University. She consults with schools, districts, leaders, coaches and teachers on collaboration, professional growth and leadership in the USA and internationally. Ellie is the author of prize-winning, best-selling books, including Helping Teachers Learn, Leading Adult Learning and Helping Educators Grow. Her work has earned awards from the Spencer Foundation, the Klingenstein Foundation and Harvard where she served on faculty for eight years and was given the Morningstar Award for Excellence in Teaching. Recently she received three outstanding teaching awards from Columbia University where she serves as the Director of the PhD program in Education Leadership and the Faculty Director and Co-Facilitator of the Leadership Institutes for School Change. Welcome Ellie.
1: Thank you, Deb. It is such an honor to be here with you. I want to say thank you for inviting me and also for doing these podcasts. They're really gifts to everyone. I'm very honored to be here.
0: Well, thank you. I'm really excited to start the conversation with you today because your work has had such an impact on my research and my practice and the way that I go about life conversation, leading learning, and those kinds of things. So, I want to just start by talking about the field of your work because your work's really based in developmental psychology and adult learning theory, adult development theory, that's not always the field that we look at when we're looking at educational leadership. So I'm wondering what that particular field, what that particular lens offers us when we think about adult learning and supporting the adult learners in our schools or organizations.
1: That is such a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. You know, I started out as a teacher. I still am a teacher, but I started out teaching middle and high school students. And I became really interested in the relationship between what happens when teachers are feeling well-held and able to thrive in a school. What happens to students? How do they feel in the classroom? Uh, How does that influence their social, emotional well-being? And what I didn't know when I went back to graduate school was that there was this emerging field of adult development and psychology and how we need to be well held throughout our lives in order to thrive and to give. And so I think you're absolutely right. It is very unusual to have someone who's a developmental psychologist uh, in education leadership. And when I think about it, I think that, you know, that is so much of what we do is all about relationships and Meeting people where they are and listening and being able to be of good support to them in their journeys. And developmental psychology really, I think, can help us to understand some of the complexities that not only have always existed in leadership and in education, but especially now, in light of, you know, depending on how you look at it, the quadruple. Pandemics that are, you know, living in our world, and um, many of which have always been there, but they're becoming increasingly brought to the forefront. So I think that, you know, a lot of people get backgrounds in psychology and they'll go into business or they'll go into education. And I think that that kind of a background can help us no matter what we're doing, because it is, I mean, teaching is such a human endeavor. And being in relationship Mm. with people is also, you know, something that is so precious. And I think, you know, we're all, a lot of people call themselves armchair psychologists, but I think psychology can help us no matter, you know, if we're, if we're thinking about our personal life, our family life, our professional life, it's sort of a big, bright through line that runs through relationships,
0: so, it's really about anchoring ourselves in the relationality of education or of what we're doing, and also about the fact that well being and being well and being in relationship with one another is becoming just more and more important in the world in general.
1: Yes, that's a great, succinct summary of what is needed in the world today.
0: So, one of the things you just mentioned, which is something that sort of really guides the work that I do in my work in schools and in sort of the practice, I suppose, of educational leadership and also in my research is that you said people need to be well held. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about that idea of the holding environment, that I sort of understand that as that we're creating these conditions of psychological safety and that that needs to include both high support for people and also high challenge or the opportunity to stretch. I mean, I think that's really foundational to the work that you do and it's then it's sort of become foundational to the work that I do and I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that concept and why it's important but also like, how do we then do it?
1: I do use that terminology well held because to me it really does encapsulate the holding environment which uh, is a term that was initially coined by D.W. Winnicott who was a paediatrician and a psychologist and he was noticing how infants really need different kinds of physical and emotional holding uh, as they move through infancy. And that terminology actually carried through holding environments. Many developmental psychologists started thinking about how, wow, you know, we need that as we grow, not only when, whenever someone is an adult, But throughout our adulthood, because adulthood can be a time of very rich development, provided that, as you said, Deb, we have the conditions that help us to grow. And in order, you know, this concept, the holding environment or feeling well held is really about meeting someone where they are uh, without an urgent need to kind of push them to change, but just being present, you know. We do that a lot by listening carefully. Listening is such hard work. Hmm. It is.
0: It's much harder than waiting your turn to speak, <laughs> actually listening to what someone's saying.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's one of the ways in which we meet people where they are without an urgent need to make them change. And with all the urgencies in education today especially, that's not always easy. Um, a lot of people... Uh, you know, have as an improvement goal to become a better listener. And um, that is such an important goal because in, in today's world, sometimes just the listening helps someone to free themselves from their pain, from their struggle, from what's really worrying them or pressing on them or weighing on them.
0: I've had uh, feedback from guests on this podcast who really generously give their own time and even I'm remembering feedback from my uh, research participants when I did my PhD where that interview, I think I had about three questions and they went for 40 minutes to an hour and it was really just that very active listening on my part. But people have thanked me for those experiences because it's not often actually that we have the luxury of someone really deeply listening to us in listening rather than in conversation or, or, and in seeking to understand and to hear rather than seeking to respond. So it's a actually quite an unusual way of interacting, I think.
1: Yes, I think so too feel like I'm sitting in your living room with you it's so nice
0: (laughs) you are in my living room
1: ah. (laughs) Uh, but you talk about this
0: you talk about that meeting someone where they are and I think that the thing that I remember I mean I came and visited you at Teachers College in 2014 quite some time ago and one thing I remember you talking to me about was that underlying principle that adult learners own their own learning and should be able to choose not just how they grow but actually even whether they grow And I also think I remember I was at a session of yours at AERA in DC in 2016. And I'm pretty sure that at the beginning you said, so this is what I'll be talking about. And if it's not for you, you know, you're welcome to go giving people that option to not be there as well as to be there. And I think often school leaders or educational leaders expect people to do certain things or standardize the kind of way that adults learn. So how important is that idea about meeting people where they are, but also providing alternative ways to grow or even the opportunity to say, do you know what, not right now, not for me?
1: I I think it's very important. I think that, you know, we can create the conditions for someone to grow and I have so many thoughts going on as well just to be completely transparent. So we can create those conditions and we have to also always be aware that, you know, someone has to really be ready. This whole concept of readiness is so, so important. And giving people options, especially adults, letting them have options and understanding that, you know, what we can give might not be for everyone. So I want to I want to just hold on to that for one second, to go back to this whole thing about meeting someone where they are and readiness. So a holding environment is really I mean, I think so much of what I do is listen first. And I do it in coaching. You know, a lot of people in coaching will say, oh, I just, I just want to process. And it's so important to have that sacred space where someone can just talk and think out loud without being judged. And that process, you know, the magic when you ask someone a question and you can see them, they're just for the first time coming to know what they think about something or it's the first time they've ever said something out loud. So all of that, I think, constitutes holding someone well. And sometimes we don't have to say anything. What you said, Deb, about when you were conducting your dissertation research and you were listening and you had these questions, and maybe you asked two or three of them, and the person just kept talking and talking. I know that feeling, I know that feeling. (laughs) And the thing is, it's so rare, educators, teacher leaders, principals, directors, people hardly ever get the chance to be listened to because they they do that all day long, pouring into other people. So I know what you mean about the chance to be able to talk out loud. So that's one piece of holding well. Another piece of holding well, I think is what you said about offering some challenge in the developmental sense, stretching When someone is ready, you know, posing alternatives, inviting them to consider alternative ways of knowing. Growth at these different developmental stages requires a different kind of, you know, if you will, tap or knock, knock, or sometimes even a push to disorient them a little bit, depending on where they are. That's another function of what we do when we're trying to help other people grow. Someone once said to me, you know, you have to put the pain in that book. (laughs) Growth is hard. And that is so true. Mm. It is hard. It is not easy. And the third piece is just remaining present as someone is demonstrating these new capacities. And, you know, there, there are times when someone might surprise us because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that was the old me. This is the new me. Or I remember when I, when I couldn't do that, when I couldn't turn toward a difficult conversation. I'm honored to do a lot of work and it never really feels like work to me with teacher leaders or with whole schools or with whole districts. You know, teaming, teaming is so hard. Collaboration is so hard. To be a good collaborator, oh my goodness. It's hard. And in today's world, especially doing all of this communication on and offline, you know, thinking about our agreements, our expectations. How do we do that? I I could go on and on, but I think now I I have answered your question, right? (laughs) I hope. Mm. And
0: so part of that being well held, it's interesting you talked about is the difficult parts So between collaborating, listening, giving feedback, having difficult conversations, it's not all about doing whatever you want, however you want. It's about the right kind of support, really tuning into people, but also part of that safety of that holding environment, being well held is so that we can do the hard stuff and it feel like it's a safe place to do that. What's the importance of that? I suppose the negative side of feedback, or you know, the the challenge and the the pain that you said that it's not always you know sunshine and rainbows when when we're talking about a, a good environment of collaboration and feedback and growth.
1: I'll give different three different examples, um, if that would be helpful. So a lot of times, teachers when they're collaborating across the grade level or vertically, or they might be on leadership teams. And this is not exclusive to teachers. I'm just using some examples of things I've learned from teacher educators. Often when they're working in a team or collaborating, they use this phrase, it's all on me. And I ask, what happens when someone's not doing their share? Usually at the beginning of a developmental institute, they'll say nothing. We don't say anything. And this movement to be able to turn towards someone and say, you know, I'm happy to do my share, but what I need is I I wonder, you know, can you help me understand why you're not meeting the expectations, why you're not meeting the deadlines? That is so hard, so hard and so freeing when teachers on teams are able to do that. I also work with in developmental institutes and in coaching, you know, a lot of coaching is virtual. So we're on zoom and my coaching, a lot of it is on zoom, Uh, leaders who are in like assistant director positions and they work in teams with other assistant directors in large systems and being able to be a good teammate in that way. When someone says or does something, or when they're growing their own leadership to be able to speak up. A lot of times I'll say, well, do you think you could say this? Someone will say, oh, no, I couldn't say that, but maybe I can say this. Just practicing, building that muscle. It's not something that we're born with or we inherit, Mm. being able to speak our hearts and minds. It's hard because for people at different developmental places, Different things are at risk. They might feel like if they tell the truth or they really turn toward conflict or they say when they've been hurt on a team, on a grade level, in team teaching or in leadership that people will think they're weak or they'll think they're incompetent or they'll think they can't handle it. And so creating those conditions and fertilizing them, starting with the small things, because the small things really are the big things. You know, you can't just immediately gain trust. And the same thing is true, you know, not just for teacher leaders or assistant leaders or principals or directors, it's we're human beings and these things, and it's not just education. This is true feedback you mentioned. You know, how do we give feedback so that people can actually take it in and do something with it? What do we do before giving feedback? How can we differentiate our feedback for people who see the world in different ways? Some people are very concrete in their orientation. This is a structure of mind. It is not, as you know, a personality thing. Other people are more relational. They look to the outside for authority figures for what other people want them to do and seek their approval. Other people can take a strong stand. They have their own bench of judgment. Those are not just things that we can, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people read about Stephen Covey, who I have great respect for, a man who dedicated his life to understanding what do highly effective people do at work. What I'm saying is underneath those sort of the roots of the system are capacities that are on the inside, cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, and intrapersonal, and we can grow those throughout our lives if we have the right conditions.
0: So I think what you're talking about now is that notion, the word that you've used before, transformational, learning. And I piggybacked on that in my work. I I did my PhD thesis and then wrote my book on transformational professional learning. And I was really heavily reliant on the theorizing that you did around that idea about transformation, because you talk about that it is actively changing how a, how a person knows and those shifts in not just how we think, but also emotion, capacity and our ways of knowing as well as what we know. So then when I talked about transformational professional learning, it was about, for me, it was that when we are learning as professionals, we need to shift our beliefs as well as our behaviours. So there is, there's that sort of multi-layered aspect. And you're talking now about your ways of knowing, I think, that you've spoken about in some of your books, four ways in which different people know and experience the world in different ways. And that, I guess, as a leader or as a coach or as a teacher or as a person in a relationship with someone of any kind that we need to tune into what it is that, that they need. And is that, is that that we're guessing or is that, that we say, Hey, (laughs) what, what is it that you need right now? So how do we know, like, you know, I, I manage about 17 people. How am I to know what each of them needs in terms of feedback and how I might differentiate the way in which I give that feedback to them? Is it a kind of intuitive listening and tuning in thing, or is there, are there other things I could be thinking about?
1: They're so lucky to have you. Part of it is listening i often recommend that people share development and developmental principles you know there are lots of ways so there are you know charts within books that i've written and that i've co-authored where you know so let's say feedback there's this chart how do you know people download it from the internet all the time and it actually depicts some of the key characteristics of, of these different ways of knowing. And what I usually invite people to do is not just to like keep that developmental knowledge in their back pocket, but to say that, I mean, if it's true, that you know this is something that I think might help me to give you feedback, or this is something that I think might help us as a team, if we could better understand where we are developmentally, what are each of our strengths, developmental strengths, and what are our growing edges? and there are short articles some of which i've written for learning forward and there are other people who have written pieces and you know if people really read these together and think about them our natural tendency when we look at something like that is oh where am i on this continuum and we can even ask people i mean first I usually invite them to have a have a feedback, buddy. You know, what do you feel you're really strong at in terms of your own way of knowing and what are your growing edges? What is something that you'd like to get better at? Whether it's really delegating or turning toward difficult conversations or really sharing important work, not just the little things. So part of it is when we listen, we can ask questions about what does that mean to you? If someone is more of a socializing knower, which is a very common way of knowing in adulthood, there have been many studies around this, seeking other people's approval. They don't yet have their own internal bench of judgment. They orient to a world of feelings. What's most important to them is having your approval as their supervisor. It's not just about wanting to be like, it's about reality is really co-constructed. Conflict is a threat, the way that they conceptualize it to themselves and to their relationship. If you give someone an article that describes these different ways of knowing, and they are trying to locate themselves, it's helpful to understand what are our own developmental strengths? What are our growing edges? And maybe if you have a feedback buddy or someone that you're know you talking with about development and maybe that can expand to be a team or a group of people where you're purposefully trying to grow yourself and help each other grow. That's how I think we build developmental cultures. We build cultures of feedback where feedback is not just we give it to each other once a year. That's it. It's like a drop in the lap. Feedback can become something that is part of our day-to-day, week-to-week existence, because it is one of the primary ways in which we can grow. And yet we can't use a one-style approach to giving feedback because it doesn't work. Just like offering leadership roles to lift leadership in a team, in a school, in a system, we need to differentiate. We need to think about, okay, this person is really good at, at whatever, whatever it is. And their growing edge maybe is to stand in another person's shoes, take on their perspective. What would be a good leadership role that wouldn't be so far out there on the horizon, but that would be a little step forward. You know what I mean? Mm. So I think sharing a developmental, I mean, it's so interesting because I was just talking with a board of education yesterday and they were asking, you know, what is it that you do? And, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I said, well, I can tell you a lot about what I do. I guess one of the things I've been thinking about is what is it that you need? What is it that you as a board think that you need to get better at? So I think that that's a starting place at the individual, the team and the group level and the system level. And it's not just I know we're talking with educators, and that's our audience, and I have deep respect for people who give and give and give the lighthouses of the world. These kinds of ideas, the importance of collaboration, of teaming, of feedback, of differentiating for people in our care is not exclusive to education or to work. It's everywhere. You know, you said earlier, Deb, that it's influenced The way you think about your personal and interpersonal relationships, not just in your leadership role, but in your life. And
0: I'm wondering when I'm thinking about what you're saying, as well as the fact that that idea about reflecting on a continuum or on ways of knowing might help us to know if nothing else, that actually our way of knowing and thinking and operating is not the only way. Because I think often we reflect our own way on other people and then we get really confused when they're not taking it with the sort of same gratitude that we might take it ourselves. But I'm wondering, to what extent, when we're thinking about someone who is maybe a leader or a coach or is really good at giving and receiving feedback, to what extent is that technical capacity and skill and knowledge? And to what extent is it about a way of being in the world? And maybe it's a bit of both, because if I reflect on my own journey sort of in this space over time, probably it's a bit of a spiral where I would start with some knowledge and some skill and some learning and then I would embed that probably a little bit in how I am and how I exist in the world and how I relate to others and then build on that over time. But to what extent do you think it is either kind of intuitive or a learned way of being or something that we need to be really intentional about learning and applying in our spaces?
1: Great question. I think it depends on the kind of coaching the kind of leadership. There are lots of different kinds of coaching, uh, let's just say, in the world today. So there is a lot of skill-based coaching, instructional coaching, helping people to learn to master classroom management, how to ask different kinds of questions of students, of adults, when facilitating, if someone is training to be a coach. So I think there are There are skill-based coaching. There's also, you know, a big thing is life coaching. It's big in Australia. It's big all over the world. Uh, What is that? Well, it depends on how you define it. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. developmental coaching, which is really aimed purposefully at helping someone to grow some part of themselves. Now, all of that being said, there are always, I think, the technical aspects of how do you do that? How do you set it up? What are the ground rules? What are the expectations? What are the other person's assumptions and expectations and what are our own as coaches? What are the boundaries? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And then there's also the, who am I in this relationship and who are you and you know, what is the chemistry? I, I was coaching someone who is a coach. And she was telling me that she was coaching teachers around instructional practice. It was in a high poverty urban area. And there were definitive benchmarks like teachers, especially new teachers. They had to do X, Y, and Z by a certain point in time. And she was coaching this one person who she said was talking about her to the other teachers And I said to her, do you think the teacher knows that you know she's talking about you? And she said, no. And I said, well, why don't you tell her? And why don't you say to her, I want you to be successful here. And if you feel that you need a different coach, I want you to have that. Because that's of utmost importance to me. So that's a little tiny illustration of the importance of how we relate to each other our way of being in the world. I mean, I'm all about, you know, clappers and pom poms (laughs) and, you know, I mean, when, and especially on zoom, like for some people, when they first meet me, they're like, what is she doing? You know? And then now I have, I mean, and then many of them get their own clappers and their own pom poms, you know, because it's a way of celebrating, the work and, you know, who other people are in the world and, you know, adding a little bit of lightness and joy, especially in the midst of, you know, the pandemics. So I think a short answer to your question is that I think it all matters. There are technical aspects and there are, you know, human aspects and there are intuitive aspects. I think it's really important, as I know you know, to pay attention to how we feel when we're with someone. and. Um, Sometimes we have no choice. We're, We're in a relationship, whether it's a work relationship or a supervisory relationship, and we don't have a choice. So we have to find it within ourselves to find a way to work together. Other times when someone is coming to you to be coached, or you're going to someone to be coached, it's that thing that you said, Deb, that adults need choices and so do children and adolescents whenever possible.
0: And the other thing I'm hearing you sort of talk about in some of these examples is a kind of a kind frankness that no matter what that relationship is, there's a, an honesty, a sort of gentle or a compassionate honesty that you need to have with one another maybe. And I'm reflecting on uh, some time ago when I was in a, at a school just after I came to see you in New York because that's what I was sort of researching was what we were going to do at our school at the time. And what was decided on was that there would be a coaching model rolled out for all staff and that was done in a pilot over a few years gathering a lot of feedback and consultation but at at one point the principal said and now everybody gets a coach from now on. And there were some people who said, no, thank you. Thank you for that gift. I would like to return it. I don't need or want a coach. That's not what I'm interested in. And so, that sort of choice was taken away, I suppose, and their their ability to opt out was taken away. And that eventually, that feedback actually led to us changing it to a differentiated model of a range of different alternatives and options the non-negotiable being, hey, we're all going to continuously improve, we're all going to learn, we're all going to do something, but that can look like a whole bunch of different things as opposed to here's the one thing that we're all doing, you're welcome. Uh, So I think that idea about differentiation but also um, an openness to hear feedback from others but also to be open about how we might make this work uh, and to be honest with each other about that is really important.
1: I love that example and I remember when we were talking in 2014. I remember that. I love that example of opening it up. You know, it's not and it's not easy for uh leaders who have been in the system for a really long time because that's the way it always was. We're gonna do one thing and everyone's gonna do it and we're gonna do it together. You know, I think it's um it's it's like when computers started finding their homes in classrooms and I remember this one teacher I was teaching with, he would, he actually picked up the computer and put it in the closet. Why? I think he was, he was so afraid of it. And, you know, he grew to put his arms around it. Eventually it took time though, uh, because there wasn't Mm. a differentiated approach there. It was just everyone is going to do this now. Yeah. That's such a powerful Mm. example that you just gave.
0: The one thing that you've been talking about a little bit is this idea of teaming, which is the term that you use. Can you explain a little bit what that means to, to do teaming or for it to be a pillar of some kind of bigger collaborative practice?
1: Huh. Yes. You know, teaming is an example of collaboration. That's so helpful that you asked that question because I remember I was doing a podcast or a webinar actually for leaders and learners at Trinity in Dublin. And, you know, the person who was leading the podcast said to me, we're not going to use the word teaming all the time because in Ireland, teaming is very new. In fact, there were no teams uh, a couple of years ago because in, in that system, it was the head of the school who made all the decisions. So, teaming is a is one of those concepts that's very popular in the U.S. But really, what it is is it's just collaborating. It's collaborating over a longer period of time. Usually, teams have some kind of shared goal, and it's working together. Uh, it's collaborating, and a lot of times teams will work in, within one classroom, co-teaching, you know, or Teams will work on a grade level in a primary school. All of the teachers who are grade one teachers will talk about what are they doing? What is a new initiative they'd like to adopt? How does someone do this? Can we learn from each other? In the best cases, teams are places where people make decisions together. Or they benefit from each other's wisdom and they share the kinds of practices that they're using in their classrooms. Or they share what's really hard and what they need help with. Teams are not always composed of people who have the same role. Sometimes teams are vertical. Sometimes we collaborate vertically. So you said you have 17 people in your care. I mean, would you consider yourself a group That works together in an ongoing way where you are talking with each other, where you take on new initiatives, where sometimes it's really hard when work is distributed. Sometimes people tell me that it's always the same people who volunteer to take on the leadership and we want it to infiltrate. We want it to have tentacles across the whole organization and that's hard. So how do we talk about that in a group? How do we collaborate? How do we speak about what's really on our minds, on our hearts, even when it's hard? I mean, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration. Teams are not all struggle. The struggle is sometimes, though, where the people need help with building teams so that they are places where we can get the work done and where we can actually grow our own capacity for instruction, for giving feedback, For lifting leadership. Does that help with the way I'm Mm -hmm. using that word? So it's
0: collaboration, but within a team and really intentional integrated work around a shared purpose together.
1: Yes, yes. And a team doesn't have to be, you know, 14 people or 18 people. A team can be a team of two people working together over time with a shared purpose.
0: Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I'm watching the clock tick by. We're coming to the end of our time together. And so I'm going to move us to what I call the enlightening round, which is our final five questions. Okay. The first of which is, what is something unexpected that people might not know about you? Huh?
1: That's a great question. Well, I said the thing about that I use a lot of clappers and pom-poms. I guess something <laughs> that people might not know about me also is that I love to walk early in the morning when the world is waking up. It just is something that really fills my soul. And it's also a space that helps me to renew and to be able to give throughout the day. So I like to watch the sunrise and listen to the birds wake up and the world wake up.
0: Beautiful. That is one of my favorite times of the day as well. Mm. What about something, uh, well, apparently there's clappers and pom-poms. Is there something else that's currently on your desk?
1: Yes, so, on my desk right now at the moment, I'm in the midst of writing two books, and one of them is the book that we're uh, I'm co-writing with two other people, Jessica Bloom DiStefano Stefano and Deb Brooks Lawrence. and it's all about how our own internal capacities influence the ways in which we think about diversity, equity, and how we lead on behalf of social justice. So, it's really the first study of its kind that's used this developmental framework. Uh, we had the gift and honor and privilege of interviewing 50 educational leaders from across the United States who hold very different kinds of positions in different systems. They're of different ages, different races, different ethnicities, different sexual orientations, different very very many differences so that that is what is on my desk right now I'm in the midst of it and we're trying to get our draft out by September 1.
0: (laughs) Fantastic oh that is very exciting and a different but important direction especially we talked earlier about the multiple pandemics and where the world's at and what it needs that sounds like a really important book what about someone Ellie who inspires you in the work that you do?
1: I would say that my husband, David, inspires me. He is definitely one of my greatest teachers and the love of my life. I also think I'm, I continue to be inspired by my parents, even though they're physically not on earth. I always feel that they are with me. And of course, my teacher, Bob Keegan, who was the first person who introduced this whole notion of adult development who has touched my life in ways that are indescribable, uh, he continues to be an inspiration as well.
0: Fantastic. And what about one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about?
1: Uh, so I'm excited about cherishing all of August. Here in the US, we're still on, you know, quote, summer vacation. I'm also excited about going to this place called Six Mile Cyprus, which is a preserve with my husband this weekend. I'm also excited that I'm going to get to see my nephews and my brother in their new home uh, in Virginia. And I just try to live every day being excited about what's on my plate. I just feel incredibly blessed every day when I wake up and that I have the gift of being with people and uh, being able to both learn from them and also be of some service to them.
0: I'm just thinking as you're talking about the earlier comment you made that someone once told you that you had to put some pain into the book and talk about how things were hard. And I think you and I are probably a little bit similar. I'm I'm probably not quite as joyful and optimistic as you are, but certainly I get told that I have, you know, rose colored glasses, but that sense of kind of, you know, joy and optimism really just comes out of, of everything that you do. So if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with?
1: I think that what you just said connects to the one thought that I would leave them with. Uh, It is so hard, especially today. There's so much going on in the world, Uh, things that we can control and things that are completely out of our control. And I guess The thing I would leave educators with who are my heroes and the work that you do every single day is so hard is to really remember to celebrate yourself and to be sure to do something to refill yourself because you are so, so important to the world. And the gifts you give are really gifts of love. And it's so, so important that you have a buddy that you can talk with, um, whether it's at work or outside of work, uh, and I guess I just want you to always try to remember how incredibly special you are and the difference you make. Even if it feels like you know you're sometimes walking through molasses and it feels slow, it's definitely worth it, and you have a lot of fans, including me, out here.
0: <laughs> so remembering the importance of purpose, but also being in a caring profession. Remembering to care for yourself as well.
1: So important.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ellie, for joining me today on the Edu Salon.
1: It has been such an honor and a privilege, Deb. Thank you so much for doing this work and for inviting me. And I feel like it went by, and like my husband this morning asked me, How long are you going to be on? Like three hours? I said, No, <laughs> this is short.
0: <laughs> I'm sure we we could have made it three hours. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.